0: John chapter 17, as we complete and finish our time in this great prayer known as the High Priestly Prayer, here's what it says. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, just to review, in case you're visiting in town or you missed various weeks because of travels, the high priestly prayer, Jesus is making a number of requests before the Father just before he goes to the cross. Jesus prays in verses 1 through 5 that the Father would glorify him and that he would glorify the Father. And then Jesus prays for us and for much of the rest of the prayer, verses 6 through where we see it in verse 26 today. And he puts a couple of requests before God the Father for us. First, he prays that you and I might be kept, that God would preserve us and bring us home at the very end, that we'd be kept from sin and from the evil one's attacks But he also prays that we would be sanctified, that we would be sanctified so that we might be salt and light, a city on a hill in this world, that he he would purify us so we might be beautiful, something reflective of his glory in this broken world. And as a part of that sanctification, he prays that we would be unified, that we would have unity, that just as we have come to know God's love for us, that we would be unified in that love with one another. And then having prayed all that, Jesus comes to this last and final glorious prayer request that he has here. He actually states it simply not as a request, but as a desire. He says, I desire something. But there is a context to this prayer before we get into the prayer itself. And the context is important, particularly in light of us beginning Advent this morning. You know, various people have themed various Advent services Throughout the history of the church and in the liturgy of the church, the way we have celebrated it here is the first Sunday of Advent is a Sunday that focuses on the theme of hope. That is, we come, Lord, we long for you, we hope for you, and what you'll bring to us. And that is important in this text as well because the context of John chapter 17 is really important. We end with this beautiful prayer in these last three verses, but if you were to flip the page or simply look further down in your Bible to John chapter 18, verse 1, out of this beautiful, almost romanticized picture of hearing Jesus talk to God the Father on our behalf, we will be dropped into utter cruelty. And where Jesus will, we will be abruptly woken to from this moment of beauty to a world that is full of cruelty and pain and betrayal and grievous sin. For the very next chapter, Jesus will move into the Garden of Gethsemane. The very next account will be Judas kissing Jesus with betrayal. And then his very disciples will leave him and scatter from him. And he will move rapidly to the cross. And it is from that that after this quiet, this final moment of his disciples listening in on this prayer, that they will be thrust into a life of confusion and frustration and difficulty and persecution. But in the midst of that suffering, we have these words to cling to. We we cling to the prayer of Jesus, to hear this prayer To take hold of what Jesus prays for us is to find hope in the midst of a world of darkness and suffering. You can just simply imagine Peter, who listens in on this prayer, that one day he will be led out to a cross where he will be martyred on a cross upside down. And those dark hours before he goes to the cross, that he remembers these words from Jesus. My prayers that they would be with me in glory. That Stephen, when he's dragged out from being in the court of the people, and they're staking stones, and what does he look up and what does he long for? To see the glory of God. John, when he is isolated on a lice-ridden island all by himself, left alone, he is the last of all the apostles and disciples on earth. And what will give him hope? his own reflections on what he has remembered from this scene and the prayers that Jesus prayed for him. This testimony, hearing and reading and reflecting and meditating upon Jesus' prayer, has given hope to the saints throughout history. In fact, John Knox, who is the great Scottish reformer, had these verses read to him every day in the month leading up to his death. If this is what he simply want read, wanted read over him time in and time out. And for the sake of hope, I want us like one final time, we have this opportunity to hear the prayer of Jesus, to imagine yourself as a little child. Did you ever do this as a kid? Your parents were talking in the bedroom, and you, you got down on the floor, and you peered up under the door. Or you pressed your ear against the doorframe, longing to hear what they had to say. And so one final time, let's press our ear to the door of heaven and hear what Jesus says to the Father. And would it give us hope? And in this prayer, we hear of our hope. First and foremost, simply two points this morning. Our hope is found in hearing of God's longings for the future. God has longings for the future. Our hope is found in future desires. A hope is this. You ever thought about what hope is? Hope is a future prospect. It is something out there, something so great and so good that it actually gives us life and energy to allow us to face today's hardships and difficulties. And what you look forward to in the future will radically change the way you live your life today. Let me just briefly illustrate it with a rather mundane and pedantic illustration, but it goes like this. If you were to take a job, and if someone were to come to you and say, I'm going I'm to ask you to take a job for a year, and it's going to be the worst job you've ever had. You're going to have abusive, awful, terrible, disgusting bosses. You're going to have employees around you who stink. They're lazy. They blame you for all the problems that go wrong in the business. And the work is going to be either mundane and boring one moment, and maybe sometimes simply terrifying and disgusting the others. But to one guy, he offers 50. He says, I will, If you'll take this job, I'll give you $15,000 at the end of the year. But to another person, he says, I'll offer you $15 million. Who's going to put up with the mundaneness and the frustration and the day in and day out weariness of that year better? It's the guy who's going to get a greater reward. And so Jesus looks forward as he faces the cross, and as he sends out his disciples into a world of suffering and difficulty, he says this, I want you to set your eyes on what your future is, and what is the future desire that we hear Jesus praying for? What is it? Three phrases I want you to hear about our future Three things that he's going to remind us of, and these are some we've heard already before in this prayer. But here's what he says in this prayer. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me. First, let's stop there. We've been here before already, but I want you to remember this. You have given me. Our future hope is a remembrance of who we are. We are those who belong to God. We have seen this already in the prayer, in fact, six times. Verse 2, 6, 9, 11, and 12, Jesus has made it clear that we are the gift of the Father to Jesus and the gift of Jesus to the Father. And now we see it again in verse 24. I don't have time to stay here long because we've already meditated on this, but understand this, that your meditations for hope in the world need to be redundant. Need to be redundant. One of the things as a pastor that I come across, of, and especially preaching through a series like this, is preaching through a prayer is going, Jesus keeps saying the same thing over and over. i got to figure out a new way to say the same thing I've already said three times. That you are God's gift to God. It is often pointed out that when Jesus or other biblical writers say something three times, that it means that it's really, really important. Well, what does it say when Jesus prays something seven times? What does it say when you pray something seven times in the course of a five-minute prayer? What would give you hope in the midst of sorrow and suffering? What would give you hope in the midst of your own failures and sins? That Jesus whispers to you, and he says, remember this, you are mine. You're my gift to me. There's this beautiful passage in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 5. I had a conversation with when I was a youth pastor with a kid in my youth group, and we were having a classic conversation that one would have with high schoolers in which they come and they want to know the ethical di- dilemma of whether they can get a tattoo. And I remember saying, well, there's some issues about that in the, new, in the Old Testament, and yeah, you're the, you know, the temple is your body, and what does your mother say? And, and, and I said, but then I went on and just trying to connect, I said, you know what, I, but I thought about what I would have if I were to get a tattoo, I would get this phrase that's connected to Isaiah 44, verse 5. It says this, this one will say, I am the Lord's, and another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, or in another way, another, it's the, you know, on his wrists, the Lord's. In the Hebrew, to write, it means to engrave. That you would engrave upon your wrists, I am the Lord's. That kid went home and told his mom that I said the tattoos are okay, and he actually went and got that tattoo, which really ticked me off. One, because he stole my idea and then blamed me for it. But do you understand that beautiful truth? I am the Lord's. We move on. Our hope is found in that we are the, the Lord's. So he goes on in the phrase. Continue on, verse 24. I, you, here's who he wants. What does he want for those who are his? That they may be with me where I am that they may be with me where I am. And what is the longing of our Lord? The desire is that those who are his would be with him. You know, what are we celebrating in Christmas? What have we already sung this morning? What is the word that Jesus says? That He says, I am Emmanuel, God with us. The hope of heaven and the hope of the world and the greatest longing of the human heart is the, and the longing, is, it's reflected in us that the greatest longing of the human heart is to be with God and that is appropriate because we are the image bearers of the very one whose greatest longing is to be with us. That longing to be in God's presence is simply you reflecting your image bearing because God longs to be with you. That is his heart. This is what he longs for and so he asks the Father for it. He doesn't simply ask that he might be with you merely because that's what's best for you. He doesn't ask that he would be with you because that's the the thing that Jesus is supposed to do. That's the right thing to do. As if he's like, oh, fine. Like, Like an older brother kind of dragging along the little brother. Okay, I'll let him be with me. No. He asks that you would be with him because what? That's what he wants more than anything else. And can you imagine Jesus praying, praying this for you now? But in, a difficult, in the midst of a difficult day, that you and I actually remember this and, and, and think of Jesus praying this prayer over you. What I want is for him to be with me. I think of a parent who has sent their child off to college for the first time. And the course of what many of you probably experience, and what some of you parents have already experienced, is that your child goes off to college, and at some point in the first couple years of school, that things become rather disastrous. That They are exhausted, and they are worn out, and life becomes confusing, and it becomes overwhelming, and they don't know how to handle it. And so what do they do? They call home in tears, overwhelmed, and it's the week before finals, and they're saying, I've got this paper to write, and I've got this test to get ready for, and I have gotten no sleep, and I've got to do this, this, and this, and I am exhausted. And the parent gets on the phone, and they pray over their grown baby, and they say, honey, honey, just understand this in one week. My greatest longing, I just want to be with you right now. In one week. It doesn't mean that, they, that the exhaustion is any less exhausting. It doesn't mean that the work and getting ready for the exam and getting ready for the paper is any less wearisome or difficult, but they get to understand this. At the end of that week, they get to hear this prayer from their family, the longing of their mom and dad, I want to be with you. It's the heart of a mom and dad, right? That I would get up and leave home so that I can come be with you. This is what he wants for us, and this is what Jesus prays over us. Charles Spurgeon, in pondering upon the difficulty of death and why God calls some to be by his side, he understands that in the midst of a sermon on death, he actually says, We must not dabble too much in the specifics as to why God would choose to take some home in what we understand to be too early. But he says we must look to something, a wider road, a more general concept. And he points to John chapter 17, verse 24. And he says that the concept of heaven and of death is that why God calls somebody, some people home And our understanding too early is it's because he longs to be with them. That God brings us home whenever that is because the desire of Jesus is to be with us. And so Spurgeon actually says this, that Jesus' longing to be with us is the magnet of heaven, sucking us home. And this makes sense, even though it is hard for us to believe. When you consider that in Deuteronomy 32, we are called the apple of God's eye. We are his treasure in Exodus 19. We are his portion in Deuteronomy 32, and we are his bride in Revelation 21. That God longs to be with you. Robert Murray McShane, he said it this way, in a way that actually may strike you as blasphemous, but he said this, in truth, Christ cannot lack you. You are his jewels, his crown. Heaven would be no heaven to him if you were not there. Think about that for a moment. And let that truth sink in deep down into your inmost being. If we would actually even begin to grasp that, if that would be the voice and the truth that is resident over us, it would give us unbelievable praise. But to be in the presence of Jesus is not simply that we get to be there and he glorifies in us. But what else is it? To be in the presence of Jesus is to what? He wants us to be with him so that we might see his glory. To be present with God is to experience God's glory. And this is the hope of heaven. And for, here, for those of you who are uncomfortable with Jesus making so much of us, you must understand this. That Jesus is making much of us is always bound up in us making much of him. Jesus always is willing and longing to share his glory and his affection with us. So that his person, his accomplishments, that he longs for us. And he longs for us so that he delights in us so that we might delight in him. There is no contradiction between Christ acting for our glory and for our good. The two are synonymous. They go hand in hand. Our greatest treasure and our greatest satisfaction is to behold the glory of God's. When we feel most delighted in is when we behold the beauty of the one who delights in us, and that is heaven a mutual delight between us and God. And right now, we see in a mirror dimly the glory of God, but the disciples experience, what they experience and what we experience on this side of heaven is merely a veiled experience of the glory of Jesus. And although Jesus came from heaven, how did he live his life on this earth? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And his glory was veiled he was in, he was, his glory was obscured. He was living in a life of impoverty. However, he came to defeat the wicked ones of this world so that he might display the beauty of the glory of God. And one day we will see him as he really is. It says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we will, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of God. Beholding the glory of God. And where behold means to fix your gaze upon it. You won't be able to take your eyes off of God. The magnificent theme of beholding God's vase. Doesn't this all sound like a Christmas card so far, we we're at this morning? Hope and glory, you can just see it in gold writing on a Christmas card. But this should not be mere stereotypes and vagaries, lifeless caricatures of what we have in Christ Jesus. I hope we can now approach the topic of an eternal relationship with God with the riches and the vitality that it deserves. That it would strike us anew this season and all seasons of the hope that we have, the hope of glory, to be able to see who God is. The greatest longing of the human heart would be able to see the glory of God. This is called the beatific vision. And this is what we get to see in Revelation chapter 22, to see the face of God. This is what David longs for, right? Psalm 63, verse 1. "O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. So my soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And what will happen to us when we see this glory? What will be the response when we see the beauty of the one who loves us like this? Your heart and your soul will be filled with such a delight and satisfaction and joy that nothing in the real world can remotely compare. And in fact, one of the reasons why you need a new body is because you would simply explode at seeing the glory of God right now. And so we get a new body so that we can even begin to bear up under the beauty and the weight of who he is. That we, all of you have seen beautiful things, a beautiful person, a beautiful sunset, beautiful works of art, but nothing compares to the beauty of our God's. And when we see the glory of Jesus, there is an ecstatic experience that will naturally overflow. And what will it overflow into? Endless worship. Ed fussed at me a couple weeks back or a couple months back because I have made fun of the idea of us worshiping in an eternal choir. And I'm trying to get after one particular aspect of heaven that you will overflow into worship into not simply singing in a choir, but in all aspects of life. But, but, we must not lose this idea that we will overflow in all that we do with voices of praise and worship. That we will be an ever-moving, ever-living, ever-breathing, vibrating choir in heaven that works in the fields as we sing of the glories of God's. That it will be impossible not to praise Jesus. We will explode with praise. We will be unraveled by worship of who he is. God is infinite, and therefore, what you will spend all of eternity doing is coming to understand with greater depths and understanding the glories of who he is and going and as, as new vistas of his beauty come into range. You see them and you worship him all the more. That is heaven for us. So here's my question. Do you... To you who are dealing with annoying family members on Thanksgiving week, and and bogged down with the difficulties of how you're going to pay for, for Christmas gifts in a materialistic world, and how you're going to deal with the fact that you've lost a loved one this year, and this will be the first time that they're not at the table. That you meditate on heaven. There's an old Puritan pastor named Richard Baxter, and he was a deeply effective preacher in England in the 1600s, but his, his whole life in the midst of his ministry was one filled with battling one sickness after another. He was harassed by a constant cough, constant migraine headaches, digestive ailments, kidney stones, gallstones. Bodily suffering was with him, he said, from the time he was 21, and he, never said, he said he never spent another hour of his life without pain. And one of the effects of this suffering was to make him intensely conscious of how temporary this life is and how inevitable death is. And whence, when he desired that when from the time he was 35 and he died a few years later, he was bedbound by one of his diseases and thought he would probably not recover. And so he, 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 he decided in that moment while he was in that bed that he would spend every day, a pocket of every day, simply reflecting and meditating and writing down his thoughts about heaven every day for 30 minutes. And ultimately, his thoughts came out into a little book called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. And here's what he says in that book. If you would have light and heat in this world, the light and heat of hope, why are you not more in the sunshine? For want of the recourse to heaven, your soul is a lamp not lighted and your duty as a sacrifice without fire. But if you were to fetch one coal, one daily coal from this altar of heaven and see if your offering will not burn, keep close to the reviving fire of meditations upon our eternal life. But if you want to to wrestle through and have hope in the midst of maybe physical suffering, emotional suffering, relational suffering, then you reflect upon the joys that are yours in Christ Jesus in heaven, the glory that is to come. That's what we look forward to. That's what we celebrate as ones who live between the first advent and the second advent of Christ's coming that we hope and we look forward to that day. Now understand this, that hope is not vapid. Where there is smoke, there is fire. And too often, though, we must ground our hope because too often hope in the Christian world, right, is like the Christmas card, hope in glittering gold calligraphy. It simply seems like smoke. It's vapid and vaporous and we kind of feel like we're just simply grasping for it and it simply disappears, But where there is smoke, there is fire. And the fire that produces the hope of heaven emanates from the eternal fires of the love of God. And so I want you to see this morning not only the fact that our future is found in seeing God's desires for you and clinging for God's longings for you, but also that our hope is rooted in this. It is rooted in an ancient love. I'm going to look at two aspects of this. One will be quite complex. It is rooted in something very, very deep. It is rooted first in the nature, the loving nature of our God. You know, many over the years have asked the question, what was God doing before creation? And some of the more witty theologians have simply replied this way, what was God doing before creation? He was making hell for those cheeky enough to ask such questions. But we need not be smart, Alex, about what Jesus was, God was doing before creation, do we? Jesus tells us doesn't he He says it here in verse 24 He says before he says I want them to be with me and to see my glory the glory that you gave me because of the love that you had for me before the foundation of the world So what was God doing before the foundation of the world He was loving and this is indeed who Jesus is. He says, Jesus has actually said in verse 25, He's come to reveal the name of our God. That means to reveal the fullness of His character and His attributes. And what He has come to reveal to us is what? It say? What does it say? What does He long for us to know? And he'll continue to long for us to know, which is this is to know the love of God the love that God has for the Son, that we would know that very love ourselves. In other words, Jesus has come to make known that our God has from all of eternity been a God of love. This is radically important. God is love at the core of his nature. And here we actually begin to plumb the depths of some old dusty theology, of Trinitarian theology that is difficult for us to grasp. So let me see if I can just give it in the story of how this was brought about theologically. There's a man named Richard. He lived in the 1150s. He was a young Scot, and he entered the Abbey of St. Victor, which is just outside the walls of the Bank of the Seine. And there he dedicated himself to contemplating God and was soon known as one of the most influential authors of his day. And here's what Richard argued as he reflected on our Trinitarian God. The fact that we have one God, the kids said it today, right? In Deuteronomy, the Shema, the Shema, The Lord your God is one. He comes to reveal the name of God. And so what we see here is Richard argued that if if God were just one person, he could not be intrinsically loving. Because in order to love, there has to be someone to love. Since for all of creation, he would have had nobody to love, and therefore he would not have been loving until he made something to love. It wouldn't have been a part of his essence of his character. So what does he say? But if God were only two persons, he went on that God might be loving, but in an excluding, ungenerous way. And he went on to illustrate it this way. After all, when two persons love each other, they can be so infatuated with each other that they simply ignore everyone else. And a God like that would be very far from being good news. But, he said, when the love between two persons is happy and healthy and secure, they long and they rejoice to share it. Just so it is with God, said Richard, God being perfectly loving from all of eternity, God the Father and God the Son have the delight to share their love and joy with and through the Spirit. That we have a God who is infinitely, eternally sharing his love in a Trinitarian relationship. It is not then that God becomes sharing, being triune. God is a sharing God, a God who loves to include. Indeed, that is why God will go on to create. Why has God made you? To share and spread his love that he has for the other members of the Trinity. The Father loved Jesus before the creation of the world. And the reason the Father sends him is so that we might know the Father's love for Jesus. And that we might experience it. And so we experience it both in creation and in salvation. Because God has a love that is meant and designed to be shared. And therefore we have a God who is not isolated. An individual. It means we have a God who is far better than all the monotheistic gods of the world that are simply about themselves, that are solitary. C.S. Lewis drives us home, actually, in his book, Screwtape Levers. And to understand, Screwtape Levers is a, is a demon writing to a younger demon about how to tempt a sinner. And so here's what he says... One must face, this is what the demon says, one must face the facts that all this talk about God's love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as we would gladly believe, the demon says, mere propaganda. But God's love is an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be like his own. We want cattle who we can finally become who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in, he wants to give out. We are empty and be filled, but he is full and flows over. Seeing the very nature of who our God is. I'm going to connect this for you because I know this is a little bit ethereal. The nature of who our God is, is loving, which means this, that we can hold on to hope, that the hope that we have is rooted in the fires of an ancient love between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And that Jesus' longings to be with you and the Father's longings to be with you is merely an overflow of the unchanging but eternal loving character of our God. So therefore, you could ask yourself this, will my God's love be fickle? Absolutely not. It is unchanging. It is eternal. It is everlasting. It will not change. It does not matter. It does not ebb and flow depending on your behavior and your performance. Our God is love. And what is our hope? That our unchanging God, who says that I long for them to be with me, will bring us home. Our hope is a sure and certain hope because we have an unchanging, unmovable God. But that fire has to be seen, doesn't it? It has to be displayed. If you see smoke, but you, don't, you wonder where it may come from, you need to see the fire from whence from which it is, comes from. And so Jesus comes as the revealer of the loving character of our God to do what? To display before the world the glory of our, love, our God's loving character. And this is the other aspect of our, where our, our hope is rooted in. Our hope is rooted in the loving, not simply nature of our God, but the display of our God's loving nature. You know, if you told, if you were to ask or talk to Old Testament, even New Testament writers, and tell them that our ultimate destiny is to be before the face of God, to see the glory of God, and all of who He is, they would say, "No, no, that's we can't do that. That is beyond imagining." That God's transcendence, that he is an inapproachable God, that he is glory, is too much for us. And if we were to be in his presence, we would simply be destroyed. And then they would give you example after example from the Old Testament, where, other, where if people got close to the glory of God, they would simply be destroyed by it. That when people simply touched the Ark of the Covenant, they would die. If they, they would go, Paul, Moses goes up on the mountain before Israel, and God says, Hey, listen, nobody can touch this mountain. Because if they touch this mountain, they will die. But he says, Moses, you can come up. And Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, no, if you see my glory, it'll destroy you. And so he puts Moses in the, in the cleft of a rock and says, I will veil you by rocks. And then I'll show you simply the backside of my glory. Because otherwise you would be destroyed. Or those who went into the Holy of Holies once a year, that after a week of purification and cleansing, they would actually have to tie a rope to his ankles so that in case the glory of God in the Holy of Holies was too much for the priest, they can drag his limp body back out because the glory of God would be too much for some mere mortal. If an elephant falls on you from a tree, what will happen? You will be crushed by it. And what does the word glory mean? Wait. Wait. The cabode of God, the weight of God, and we cannot bear the glory of who God is. So, how are we to enter the, enter the gates of heaven and suddenly be face to face with the glory of God? Let me give you an illustration from the New Testament that can answer this and actually it points the way. It actually illustrates our problem and points the way to the solution. Turn to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. It'll be on the screen for you as well. And This is a scene that we have actually never, I've never addressed here, but it is a, a glorious one that's often confused and not understood in the church. It's, this, it's the scene of what of what's called the Jesus Transfiguration. Here's what it says: After six days, Matthew chapter seventeen, verses one through seven. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. This should be mimicking something if you're a good Israelite. Oh, a mountain—we're wandering up on a mountain. And here's what happens, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, and here is Peter's response, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents. Here, if one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, and he was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, "This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him." And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, and saying, "Rise and have no fear." Now, this displays our problem that if we actually, Jesus, what he does here is he doesn't show them all of his glory. He simply gives them, he just kind of, he kind of opens the tent and lets the veil creaks open just a little bit. And he shines like the sun in such a way that they are glory, they see the glory of Jesus in some way, shape, or form. And what is Peter's response? See if we can understand it. Peter says, let's build tents. Now, why does he say that? Does he think it's going to rain? Is he saying, well, this is nice. We're up on a mountain. We should all have a nice camp out with uh, Moses and Elijah. Is that what he's thinking? Why does he want to build a tent? What is Peter after? He wants to build a tabernacle. Because Peter understands that when I, oh my goodness, I can't see this glory. We need to create a tent, kind of like the tent they had in the Israel and the Israelites had in the desert so that we can have a separation between us and your glory, Jesus. So he doesn't want to keep Jesus from getting what He wants to keep himself from seeing too much of Jesus' glory because it is overwhelming to him. And yet, what we see, Peter and these men do not die. Why do they not die? Despite the fact that they see an aspect of Jesus' glory. Because Jesus, what we will see, he is precursing what he will do in order to allow us as human beings to actually come and see his glory in all its fullness. At the transfiguration, Jesus is shining and beautiful. But what is the means by which you and I will enter into the mount of heaven and see all of God's glory? It is because on another mount, where Jesus was not covered with glory and a shining light, instead Jesus was covered with what? Shame. With shame. You see, on the mount of transfiguration, Jesus' clothes, what does it say? They radiate with the glory of God. On the cross, what happens to Jesus' clothes? They are stripped of him. The Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is between Moses and Elijah. On the cross, he is between what? Two sinners. On the Mount of Transfiguration, there is a bright cloud that speaks of God's love for his beloved son. On the Mount in which he were to die on a cross, what does Jesus get? Darkness and the silence of the Father. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter still feels the weight of Jesus that he wants to build a tabernacle, but on the cross, Jesus doesn't feel the weight of Jesus at all, so much so that he simply simply betrays him. He feels the weight of a little servant girl's temptations and accusations more than he feels the weight of his God. The shame of Jesus. What is the cross? The cross is Jesus' taking the weight of God's wrath and his glory upon himself so that you and I might be ushered into God's presence one day, so that we might see not simply just a little reflection peeping out from the glory of God's tent as they did in the transfiguration, but might see all of God's glory. And when you understand that, When you see that, you see that your hope in the future is not rooted in what you do and how secure you are in your ability to keep God's word and how great your faith is, but it's rooted in this, in the display of God's love, that the lengths that he would go in order to bring you into his presence. And this is what we need in order to endure suffering in this world because to have a vision of the future like we have here that we would be with God in his presence for all of eternity will be the thing that will sustain you on the worst days of your life. The disciples from here on out, from this moment on, from the time Jesus says amen, so to speak, to this prayer, that they are going to experience confusion and darkness and difficulty and persecution, but Jesus gives them this picture And then he goes and wins for them the display. He roots their hope of the picture that he he has artistically drawn for them in this prayer. He goes and wins for them the hope that they will have this one day by dying on a cross for them. When you know where it is that you're going, you can have hope now. If you can only see the future in the midst of the darkness, then you can make it through see, some of you have physical ailments that make the, most, the fairest and best of days agonizing. But you know this future, right? That one day you'll have a new and glorious body and you'll be in his presence and you'll be able to run and dance. Some of you are walking in darkness today. the Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but what? But my God is with me. And my sure and certain hope is What? That one day I will be in his presence for all of eternity. Hope, understand this, and this is your application. Hope, and Christmas time, and any season of suffering, and any point in your life, it is hard work. It is hard work. But it is not hard work of conjuring up happy feelings that are just vapid and out there. No, it is the hard work of meditating upon, pondering, and clinging to the root of our hope, which is the love of God he has for us in Christ Jesus. That is the Christian life, to grow more and more deeply in the love of God he has for you in Christ Jesus. This is why Paul prays for us in this way. He says this in Ephesians chapter 3, 17 through 19. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend, that is to think, to meditate, to ponder, to begin to try to, get, to, to wrap your brain around with all of your might the, what, the, the, what the saints have in the love, the height, the depth, and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God's. What is the Christian life? To swim the deep waters of God's love for you. That's what it is. To go day in and day out back to the object of the fire, of the God's love in between the members of the Trinity that he now displays for you in Christ Jesus so that you might know this God has done all that is necessary to bring me home. And so that we understand this, that what God is doing simply in our present sufferings, and our difficult days, and whether they may be mundane and boring or the worst of sorrow and suffering, that he is preparing for you a weight of glory that is beyond our understanding so that's what we look forward to. And this is what the Christian life is. And indeed, this is what the Christmas season is. It is meditating day in and day out. It is seeking an ever-deepening, ever-widening knowledge of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. And so let me ask you this. Is that what emanates and energizes every aspect of your life? Do you get up every day and you go, the longing of my heart is to come to a deeper knowledge of God's love for me in Christ Jesus? That's what Jesus prays for you. Would you have the audacity to pray the same thing? To long for that more than anything else? Let's pray for that now. And then perhaps we'll experience God's love for us at the table. Lord, I think it is so beautiful that you have given us not just the smoke of promises, but you have rooted those promises in the fire of your love for us. That you have made it earthy and objective by sending your Son to display your love for us so that we might know your glory for all of eternity. And then, Lord, not even that, but you gave us a bread and a cup, physical reminders. And so, Lord, would I pray for myself, and I pray for my, my dear brothers and sisters here, that, Lord, would you, in this table now, in our time in the Word tomorrow, in our reflections upon the incarnation this month, Would you allow us to dive deeper into the knowledge of your love? The love of God so rich and free, it is pure, boundless, endless. Oh, press that in, Lord. Do that now, even as we chew upon your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.